Amen. Well, you've heard me mention Chicken Little before. Chicken Little, the sky is falling. Sky is falling. And if ever the sky seemed like it was falling, it's the first two verses of the book of Daniel. And all tangible, visible signs are that Yahweh has lost and has been defeated. And the Babylonians are marching up and down the streets. <clears throat> They've pillaged the temple, and they're all singing, Praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow. It was the worst of times. Babylonian invasion and deportation. Listen to God's word. And as I read, I always look for clues as to what the author is trying to say. And so I always look for repetition. There's a repetition. I want you to see if you can find it as I read it. It's going to be mentioned three times in this chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. The let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let me pray for us. Father, you've told us that the word of God, these things of old, were written that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might 
have hope. And so I pray that that will be true for each one here today, that we would have hope and that we would be given encouragement to press on. And we pray that, uh, Lord, you would speak to each one of us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So did you catch the repetition? Three times we are told of God's sovereignty in this chapter. So verse 2, the Lord gave King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and companion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And again in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. So we see God gave three times in this chapter, meaning whatever else happens, God is intruding into the affairs of men. And so uh, there's a lot here for us to consider this morning. Um, I want you to think about, you know, Daniel, here he is taken to Babylon, and he's sent down. I mean, imagine how horrifying the situation is. He's, he's sent down with the most precious items from the temple in Jerusalem. Basically, you've been pillaged. And they would take the, the, the stuff from their temple and put it in their temple because my God is greater than your God. That's clearly what that meant. And so Daniel is, is accompanying these items and he's taken down to that hellish city of Babylon. He's going to work for, for the government, but there's this, there's this problem. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, guess how many times, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the Bible? How many times do you think his name is mentioned in the Bible? How about 80? That just shocked me. Most of them were in Jeremiah, but he is mentioned actually 80 times in the Bible. Okay, he's the most powerful, incredibly arrogant, pompous, godless man on the planet. And it's going to be Daniel's boss. Now, God's going to do something to Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get there in chapter 4. But, I mean, this guy, he's showing his arrogance by taking these items and bringing them down to his temple and declaring, I am, my God is greater than your God. And so Daniel's going to be under enormous pressure to conform and to assimilate. And it'd be very easy to say, well, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. And what we're going to, one of the things we're going to learn as we go through this book is how do God's people live in a godless environment? Most of you are there during the week, are you not? I mean, that's, and many of us are working for the government, often a very difficult place. And we're to be salt and light where he's placed us just as Daniel and his friends were. <clears throat> now, there's a miracle in each of the first six chapters of this book. Many of the chapters are going to end with praises to Yahweh, and even Nebuchadnezzar is going to praise him. And he gets a whole chapter of, of Scripture that I believe he penned himself, Daniel chapter 4. And so what I want us to see is what Ben Franklin said in 1787 when he addressed George Washington as they were working at this American Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and they're working on this system of government for the new nation. And on June 28th, Benjamin Franklin had that great quote. He said, I've lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proves I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Benjamin Franklin's declaration is a great summary of the book of Daniel. 
that God governs in the affairs of men. Now, we like when God governs in the affairs of men when the good guys are like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. But sometimes they're like the 100th Congress of the United States of America. 117 were bankrupted, bankrupted two or more businesses, 84 were charged with driving while intoxicated, 21 arrested for spousal abuse, 21 had lawsuits against them, 19 had been arrested for writing bad checks, 14 arrested on drug charges, 8 arrested on shoplifting charges, and 7 were convicted of fraud, and that was the Congress under Reagan from 1987 to 1989. God governs in the affairs of men, amen? He works through good and through bad. This was a bad lot. And yet we consider those the good old days, the best of times. The best of times, the worst of times. God governs in the affairs of men. So here's an outline for the chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2, the city and the vessels taken. Verse 3 to 7, the best and brightest taken. Verse 8 to 16, the best wine and food not taken. And verse 17 to 21, none like them. So let's consider those. Verse 1 and 2 is the, is the city and the vessels are taken. So consider the backdrop of history. You know, if you're going to enjoy a good play, it often the stage crew is very important for setting the props to understand the play. Well, the history that's going on behind here is that King Josiah was a great king. He went out to the Battle of Megiddo in 609 B.C. and intervened in a quarrel he shouldn't have gotten involved in and was killed by the Egyptians. He's replaced by Jehoiakim, who is going to be the king of Judah from 609 to 597 B.C. That's a significant time because in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes to town. And like I said, <clears throat> he's mentioned 80 times in the Bible he comes to Jerusalem for the first time. He begins to flex his muscles. He deports the children of Babylon or the people of Babylon in three stages. The first deportation is Daniel's three friends is in 605 B.C., okay? But, and, and most believe that Daniel's probably 14 or 15 years old at this time and his friends. The second deportation is in 597 B.C. during the reign of Jehoiachin, who was the son of Jehoiakim. And at that point, 10,000 people were taken to Babylon, and among them was Ezekiel, the prophet, and he's taken down to Babylon. And then third, the last, is the utterly devastating destruction of Jerusalem, which came in 586 B.C. when the country became a province of Babylonia. So Daniel's been in, in Babylon for 19 years before the final fall of Jerusalem and the complete deportation of the southern kingdom. And so there's a reason why there was the Babylonian captivity. And it wasn't just that Nebuchadnezzar came and he was more powerful, but that God raised him up. But we are told why this was allowed to happen. And it's in 2 Chronicles 36, 14 to 21. <clears throat> and it was because of Judah's sin. You see, we're told in, in 2 Chronicles 36 that all the, furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers 
sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And, and all these articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he's carried away to Babylon. And they were his servants to him and to, and his, to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So this is the story behind the story of Daniel. But Daniel is also telling us a story. And, and he has intentions for us to see. And I gave you one of those intentions already that three times he's trying to sell us, the Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave, that God is the one that's, it's his story. History is his story. And so if you like biblical theology, um, I came across this great quote from the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, the opening paragraph about the book of Daniel. The writer says this, the opening verses of the book of Daniel, Daniel 1, 1 and 2, present the reader with what several scholars see as the main theme of the book, the sovereignty of God. Here we read of two human kings, Jehoiakim of Judah and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has besieged and captured Jerusalem and looted its temple. The natural conclusion to draw would be that Nebuchadnezzar's triumph lay the power of his God. That is why he put the vessels taken from the Jerusalem temple into his God's treasury. However, Daniel 1-2 asserts that this triumph came about because the Lord God of Israel gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's power. So we are introduced to the themes of human sovereignty and divine sovereignty and the relationship between them. And so from a human perspective, it looks like the king of Babylon is right when he declares, my God is greater than your God. But we know the end of the story. And if you've read the book of Ezra and you read the first chapter and you know that God then raises up Cyrus and he raises up Cyrus and Cyrus says, take all that stuff from, the, from this, this temple, all the stuff that belonged to Jerusalem and take it back. They didn't win. And so it was not true that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's God was greater than Yahweh's God. Matter of fact, by the time you get to the end of the, from Daniel 1-2 to 1-21, 1-21, I love what Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite commentators, says, verse 21 of Daniel is seven Hebrew words packed with dynamite. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Think about that. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, meaning long after Nebuchadnezzar's dead and gone, long after his son is, next to, is gone, next kingdom come, Daniel is still there, and he represents the Lord because what he set out to do to show that his God is greater, Daniel's still there, and he's in the next kingdom, and he's still being faithful, doing his job. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
You see, the writer is trying to tell us something. God is trying to tell us something. Just turn me on here. <laughs> we good? Wow. God is still sovereign. <laughs> when you read the very first uh, verses here of Daniel chapter 1, you're reminded, hopefully, of the reflection verses from 1 Samuel 5 of the story of something similar that happened. It's meant to be like comic book humor is when the Philistines were capt had captured Israel and they actually had taken the ark and brought it back to their land and put it and set it next to their god, Dagon. And do you remember what happened? We're told in 1 Samuel 5 that the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on, of the, on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. I mean, you want to talk about your God falling to pieces? I mean, his head has fallen off, his arms have fallen off, and the trunk is left. And this is your God? I mean, it's meant to... And then it gets worse. It says the people were afflicted with boils, and it was so bad. And, and I remember in Hebrew class that this word boils, another alternative rendering of the word is hemorrhoids. And it was so bad, the affliction was so bad that they took the ark, they put him on an ox cart, and they sent him back to the land of Israel. Because, man, get this thing out of here. This is bad. So this should remind us, as one commentator put it, the Israelites are not mere pawns on a political and geographical chessboard. To be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is not to be out of the control of God. So I would say to us this morning, as we're thinking about our future, to be in the hands of Trump or Hillary is not to be out of the control of God. God governs in the affairs of men. And it's the chicken little is easy to say, but we have the bigger picture of the book of Daniel. And so in the bigger picture, we also see, though, that this battle that's being staged here in verses 1 and 2 is between Jerusalem and Babylon. And we know from Scripture that's very intentional because those are two very symbolic cities. Jerusalem is often called Zion, and it's a picture of the heavenly city. Babylon goes back to Babel where man first started in uniting together to let's, let's build a city to God and let's achieve by our might and our power. And we know in the book of Revelation, which the other reflection verses we're talking about, about Revelation 17 and 18, that Babylon represents the city of man. And so as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he says, Babylon and Jerusalem represent two cities to which men and women belong. They symbolize two loyalties of which the scripture speaks in many different word pictures, two gates, two ways, two masters. And as such, Babylon and Jerusalem are permanently opposed to one another. And so when I was saying earlier, we really want to put the U.S. on the Jerusalem side. But the only one that's there is the city of God. The rest are cities of man. Sorry. We really want to, 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 to mingle the two. 
And we, we want God's kingdom to come on this earth, but his kingdom is ultimately not of this world. And so there's a great spiritual battle that's going on here. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, he's writing as he's seeing the fall of the Roman Empire, the greatest empire ever been built. He's watching it collapse in front of his eyes. And he says, there are two cities. There's a city of man, a city of God. And he says, the two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Which kingdom are you in this morning? Daniel and his friends were in the city of God, and yet they worked for and were employed by the city of man. And though these two are opposed to one another, here God's people get placed right in the city of man to bring the city of God and to bring his kingdom principles to bear. And they're not called to separate and retreat. We're not called to hide in a bunker in Babylon. And it was interesting, it was the false prophets, it was the Hananiahs of Jeremiah 28 that were saying, God hasn't sent you down there and he's gonna bring you out in two years. I'm telling you, thus says the Lord. And Jeremiah comes along in chapter 29 with the famous verse, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to prosper and give you, you know, hope in a future. We love quoting that verse, but the verses before that are 70 years. You're going down there and I want you to build houses and plant gardens and give your sons and daughters in marriage. And you're going to be there a while because I know the plans I have for you. Okay. So you're going to be deported. You're going to be there 70 years, <clears throat> meaning don't separate and retreat, but don't assimilate either. God's people aren't called to do either. And so in verses 3 to 7, we see that the, the, the plan of Nebuchadnezzar was to take the best and brightest and to isolate them and indoctrinate them. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken down to Babylon, and these are the best and the brightest. They were from the royal class and the noble class. They would have been the handsomest, the wisest, the best in status, looks, bronze, brains. These were the elite, and they're going to get a Babylonian makeover. You can see the TV show, you know. Here it comes. And they're given, <clears throat> their names were significant. Daniel means God is my judge. Mishael means who's like God. And the other two names, Hananiah and Azariah, both contain a shortened form of the name Jehovah. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Azariah means Jehovah is my helper. Well, they were going to get new names. And their names were exchanged with references to Babylonian gods. So Shadrach was a command of a coup or the moon god. Meshach is who is like a coup, the moon god. Abednego is servant of the shining one, Nebo. Nice. So they're given these names. And, and they're going to be indoctrinated into this new culture, into the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And what was going to make it all palatable and acceptable to morph into this new identity would be the good cooking. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. More flies are caught with honey than with vinegar, is the common proverb. And so, verse 8 to 16, we see Daniel's wise request. He's very tactful. He doesn't go to Twitter and Facebook and publicize that, hey, we're going on a fast, you know. He tactfully realizes the chief of the eunuchs is going to be his life's at stake here if, he's, if it doesn't work out. So let's just do a 10-day test. Let's see what happens. Keep us from the king's food. Just give us vegetables. 
and let's see what happens. And so after 10 days, we'd say that's the first miracle that we see in the book of Daniel, is that these men are actually now doing better than the others, even though they don't have all the rich king's food. And so we see this as interesting in Daniel's. We're going to get to this. There's, there's like four periods in history where God really displays miracles. The Red Sea, we see God displaying miracles. And Elisha and Elisha, God pours out these miracles. The period of Daniel in this uh, uh, deportation, God is doing miracles. And then, of course, the apostolic age, God's doing miracles. And yet in the midst of these miracles, I think it's easy to, to um, overlook the fact that yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God works miracles. But these, these men were courageous. And there are times where we have to make a courageous stand. They cooperated without compromising. And so it, it does raise the question, what was wrong with the king's food? And, and a simplistic answer would be, well, they, um, it was unclean. But I think that's too simplistic of an answer. Let me, let me just try to lay this out for you and why I think they did what they did. Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite commentators, he's, he says, here's what he's, you know, just summary, he says, some of the problem, some think the problem was dietary. Food from the royal table likely included meats, for example, that were off limits because they were unclean for Israelites. This, however, doesn't explain them why they rejected the wine. Some think the ejection then was religious. The food may have been offered to idols before taken to the king's table. But then what would be saying, what would guarantee that the vegetables that Daniel requested, that they hadn't also been offered up to as an idol as well? And still others say the difficulty was symbolic, that sharing in the king's food was a token of dependence on the king and a tacit sign of, of loyalty to him. But even Daniel's alternative diet would have been government issue. It would have been impossible to avoid in the, in the, you know, the implications of dependence. So we ultimately don't really know exactly why they avoided these food rations. So I think that the best answer is that, that Daniel and his friends were being completely assimilated and being smothered and being taken in by this culture. And they had to put a stake in the ground and say this far and no further. And we have to do something to declare that our heart is really not here, that our heart is really as the people of God. And we're gonna make a stand and we will do all these other things and we will learn your language and we'll read your books and we will, we will be as wise as you are, but here is where we're making our stand. And I think for all of us, there's some place where we have to say, here's our boundaries. We're not, our family's not gonna do what all the other families do. And your kids are gonna come to you and say, but, but such and such family, they let them stay out till this and they let them see this movie and they let them do this and they let them do. And at some point, families have to say, this is our boundary. This is it. Come the flack. And so that's what, that's what Daniel and them are doing. They're saying, Let's, the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. It always will be. What's making us distinct and preserved in the midst of that? And so as this control is gaining every aspect, they put a stake down. And they had to, to act wisely and courageously and then we see in Daniel, a lot of prayer. There's a lot of prayer throughout this book. But what's interesting is you have to win the small battles before you win the big battle. They're not ready to stand up to this, you know, here's the God, 70 feet tall, 70 feet wide. If you don't bow down to him, there's this big fire and we'll throw you into it. I don't think they were ready to do that until they made the small obedience. 
it's actually sometimes harder to obey in the small areas. And this small area, they, they put their foot down and they honored the Lord. And we learned some lessons from that. And so let me try and give you a couple of lessons I think that we can learn from the book of Daniel because it was none like them. We're told in verses 17 to 21, God prospered them and blessed them, okay? So here's some things I think we can glean from this real quickly. Number one, we need to trust God. Wherever God has put you in Babylon, there's somewhere in your life where, man, you're like, this is, this is Babylon, okay? And it's a trial. And we, as God's people, we have been singing, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. We have to trust God when we're in the midst of these uh, afflictions. And we need to look at our trials, rethink them differently. Sinclair Ferguson has this great quote. He says, we view our trials as individual nightmares. God, however, sees them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace he's writing in our lives. So God doesn't view them as individual nightmares, but punctuation marks in the biography of grace that he's writing in our lives. So first thing is we have to trust God. Number two is what are we trusting specifically? His wisdom and his sovereignty. First, his wisdom. A.W. Tozier in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, has a quote about the wisdom of God. And I want you to think about that in light of this book. He says this, the idea of God is infinitely wise is at the root of all truth. It is a datum of belief necessary to the soundness of all other beliefs about God. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and thus is able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite creatures. And so we say, oh, Lord, how manifold are thy works in wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your riches. This was God's sovereign, all-wise plan to raise up this pompous King Nebuchadnezzar and to bring the people down to Babylon to accomplish his sovereign purposes that we would still be talking about Daniel today. God's not done yet. So we have to trust his sovereignty. The, James Montgomery Boyce says, the theme running through the whole book is that the fortune of kings and affairs of men are subject to God's decrees. He's able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentates on earth. And so in the midst of that, we have this promise in scripture from 1 Samuel 2.30 that God says, those who honor me, I will honor. That's what Eric Little held to when he 
switched his race, by the way, was that verse. Those who honor me, I will honor. That's what we see Daniel doing and his friends. They honor God and God honored them. And God helps his people as we stand for them. And so this book of Daniel is going to occur in the midst of exile, and it's going to provide a 70-year slice of Daniel's life. It takes us from when he's a teenager all the way into the ninth decade of his life. And we see about 70 years of his existence from 605 to 537, Daniel is being faithful to God in the midst of pagan godless kingdoms and he's standing for the truth yet he does it wisely shrewdly tactfully and God uses him to bring about good and so that's what when we say dare to be a Daniel that's what we mean is living not in a bunker but going forward where God has placed us in our callings and being salt and light and trusting God that those who honor me he will honor in his time let's pray Lord, you have much to teach us in this book, and we pray that we'd be hungry, that we'd want to hear these things and grow together as the people of God. May we trust your sovereign rule over the nations. You're the all-wise God. May you get the glory that you deserve. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.